As King's Justice, the dungeons were his responsibility. Since he lacked a tongue, Payne had largely left the running of those dungeons to his underlings, but Cersei held him to blame for Tyrion's escape all the same. It was my work, not his, Jaime almost told her. Instead, he had promised to find what answers he could from the chief undergood jailer, a bent-back old man named Renifer Longwaters. I see you wonder, what sort of name is that? The man had cackled when Jamie went to question him. It is an old name, tis true. I am not one to boast, but there is royal blood in my veins. I am descended from a princess. My father told me the tale when I was a tad of a lad. Longwaters had not been a tad of a lad for many a year to judge from his spotted head and the white hairs growing from his chin. She was the fairest treasure of the Maiden Vault. Lord Oakenfist, the great admiral, lost his heart to her, though he was married to another. She gave their son the bastard name of Waters in honor of his father, and he grew to be a great knight, as did his own son, who put the long before the waters, so men might know that he was not basely born himself. So I have a little dragon in me. Yes, I almost mistook you for Aegon the Conqueror, Jamie had answered. Yeah. Hello and welcome back to History of Westeros' weekly Fire and Blood live streams. This one is going to ex expand beyond Fire and Blood because Oakenfist's life is so long and interesting that it covers beyond just the time span of Fire and Blood. It goes well into what will be covered by Fire and Blood 2. His name pops up in the main series. His descendants are in the main So there's just a lot to talk about. He's a really fascinating character. And I'm excited to dive into him and bring out a lot of these parallels and just a lot of the fun details and the fun story. I'm Aziz, as always. My name doesn't change from week to week. <laughs> and Deshea is here today. She is on the other side of the camera. Thanks to the patrons who help make this show possible via financial support on a recurring basis. So thanks to Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword, and to our Dragon Rider patrons. That includes Talanis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black, Jinx of House Lier, Green Queen of the Rainwood, Rumored Daughter of a Woods Witch, Rider of Irogenia, a Sylphic Albino Dragon with Amethyst Eyes and Opalescent Wings, and Robert IV of House Ardeacor, Burned King of Blazewater Bay, Rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. Ice and Fire Con is coming up in April, and we really hope to see you there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so I, I mentioned, as always, that there's parallels with Oakenfist, and in particular, rather than playing the guessing game that we do sometimes, they're just going to be kind of woven in, because all the parallels surround Oakenfist, and I think a lot of these parallels are kind of straightforward once they're pointed out. And he doesn't really parallel one character super strongly, there's more like, I'd say three characters that 
he has a lot in common with. In some spots, he has some some aspects of these other characters. He's not like them at all. But in some ways, the t- connections are really tight. These characters are Davos, Orain Waters, and Daemon Targaryen, as in the rogue prince Daemon Targaryen. So as we go through these episodes, you'll see a lot of those parallels pop up. We're going to start with Driftmark and Hull and the Valerian lands and all that. I'll just give a little background on that. And of course, we are going to be doing a Sea Snake episode as well. That's a little funny that we're doing his kid before the father, but hey, that's how it worked out. Our Sea Snake episode is going to have a lot of art prepared for it, so it's a little more production that's being done on that one. Now, islands by themselves are kind of known for being a little bit off, like different, not off. <laughs> I mean, it sounds weird. I mean, like they're a little different than the mainland, not in a bad way, not necessarily in a good way either, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. But that's not really the point. This isn't a judgment thing. It's more about differences. Bear Island, great example. Their culture is different than a lot of the rest of the North. Skagos, vastly different than just about anything. It's this weird sort of proto-wildlings sort of melting pot of the North and the wildlings and throwing cannibals. Then the Iron Islands, massively different. They have their own religion. The sisters, the three sisters, right? The names keep coming, and every time I mention one, you're like, oh yeah, that's they're a little different. The Arbor, the Shield Islands. The Shields are where you have sort of reach values, but combined with naval attitudes, naval culture, which is the, most of the reach is, is very much not like that. Dragonstone, very unique in itself. And then we have lesser known places like Witch Isle, which is off the witches, haha, off the coast of the Fingers there, and is yeah. One day we'll have to talk about that one more. I don't want to get too off topic. As I said, there's so much to talk about with this one. So I always wonder what kind of differences there were on Driftmark. Like what what were the what's the kind of the unique aspect of Driftmark? What's different about it? One thing to note about it is how far out it is. Being in the Narrow Sea in Blackwater Bay. It has these connections to a lot of the free cities because of trade. And of course, it has connections to Dragonstone, not just because it's close by, but because the Valyrians took both of them. The Valyrians maybe came to Westeros before the Targaryens. They certainly claim they did. And, you know, it's interesting the way they divided the lands. I mean, Driftmark is a very fertile island. It's a little unusual maybe that no one had taken it by that point. And Dragonstone has, you know, a decent bit of fertility to it. But of course, the Targaryens took that in part because of the volcanoes. That was pretty crucial, whereas the Valerians didn't have that particular concern. And of course, they built several castles there. Driftmark grew up really big and powerful and through trade with a lot of the free cities. And it's just a really good island for building wealth. We see them, their fortunes go up and down quite a few times, but they always have the means to recover them. The exception being current times, where they're not really doing so great in terms of wealth. They're not doing badly, but they're nowhere near what they were, which is in the times of Oakenfist's young life, they were richer than even the Lannisters or the Hightowers, which is kind of crazy to think about. So in terms of falling, they've fallen really far. But when you're super wealthy like that, you can fall pretty far and still be important, still be significant, which is the case of the Valerians. Monford Valarian was loyal to Stannis, but he dies during the Battle of the Blackwater. And his son, who is now six, is apparently still loyal to Stannis because Valarian banners were seen when Stannis smashed Mance Raider. And this half-brother of Monford is none other than Orain Waters, who I mentioned is a, a lot of Oakenfist parallels. 
And it's unclear how much of the decline of House Valerian's wealth is on Oakenfist. Certainly, the destruction of all the Sea Snake's treasures is not on him. That He wasn't even Lord then, Sea Snake was. But there is some evidence that he maybe wasn't the best with money while being good at just about everything else. But, of course, the other caveat with this episode is most of what we know about his later life is pretty vague. The stuff that's outside of Fire and Blood, he dies way after Fire and Blood ends. He dies in the year 175, which is the year Bloodraven was born, right? He, he just, he uh, glamored himself to be baby Bloodraven, right? No, of course not. But he, so he died around 60-ish. He vanished at sea, so we don't actually know what year. It may not have been 175. That's kind of when they declared that, hey, he's probably never coming back. They kind of, it's, when someone disappears at sea, you don't have a specific date. You just have to go, I guess he vanished sometime around then. And we don't really know a lot about his big voyages, which is kind of too bad because those are really interesting. We love, we love the adventure stories. We love the exploration stories. But we do have some, some guesses on some of those, which we'll get to in good time. We'll start at his birth here, and now that we've had some background on Driftmark and House Valerian. Alan of Hull, he was born. Of course, that's a bastard name. His brother, Adam, was born over one year earlier, roughly, and they were, grew up together. His father, quote-unquote father, is Lenor Valerian, but we all should know, if you've taken just a few minutes to look at any of this stuff, it's pretty clear Lenor was not the dad. He was unambiguously gay, and of course... We don't believe he was the father of the strong children because of the brown hair. And with all that, it makes it extremely unlikely that he was having bastards on the side. <laughs> if he's not interested in women, he's definitely not sneaking off to have sex with one. So it's very likely that the commonly believed story that Coralise Valerian himself is the father of both Adam and Alan is true. And that is how we're going to proceed, as if that's a fact. And there's a, just a couple of pieces of detail to seal that up in terms of the logic there and why I'm so certain. If they were Lanors, why would the mother refuse to name the father? Because that would be a good thing. And why would they need to be kept away from Rhaenys, who is part of the reason that Corlys supposedly didn't acknowledge the bastards until after his wife died? Because apparently she had a hot temper and wouldn't want her husband's bastards around. Maybe a bit like the inverse of Ned and John and Lyanna. Instead of pretending the kid is his when it's not, he pretends the kid isn't his, only the, for the world to figure out the truth later, which is presumably coming for John as well. There's People are going to learn the truth, if not everyone going to learn the truth. Imagine John at cat hands, but where cat was cold, Rainies would be fiery and with a dragon. So imagine Catelyn <laughs> with a dragon. I don't think Ned could... <laughs> It would be harder for Ned to keep that secret if Catelyn had a dragon. She'd be like, no, you're going to tell me this whole story. <laughs> the mother of both of these boys, Adam and Alan, was Marilda of Hull, a.k.a. Mouse, who was a pretty awesome character. She's kind of overshadowed by her kids and her famous lovers, both the fake one and the real one, Corlys. But really just a neat character. She inherited her father's lands she inherited his shipbuilding facilities, and they were basically raised at these facilities. And since Corlys didn't claim them until later, she was the one that raised them. So she's the only parent figure early on in their life. And they took after her in a lot of ways. She's described as small and quick and clever, and that's how they're described. And brave, very brave. She's considered very brave, and both Adam and Alan, their lives prove that unquestionably, that they were brave. And ambitious. 
perhaps all three of them. Maybe maybe Adam wasn't super ambitious, but Marilda made a, a big life for herself. She expanded on her business, did th different things, traded, built her own ship, did things like that. And Alan, of course, rose very high. Adam died too young for us to know what his full life would have looked like and whether he would have aimed for high offices or things like that. But he certainly proved himself in battle. So I think that the fact that, this was, that she was a shipwright and her father was a shipwright is almost certainly the reason that there was this connection in the first place. They probably built ships for the Valerians. And that would be why Coralise was in, in contact with them. He would have come by the shipwright and been like, hey, make me some ships. And, oh, hey, your daughter, I do like her. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty neat. I also wonder about the general people of Driftmark. How many settlers came from... Valeria when the when the Valerians settled there did they bring a lot of other silver-haired people there the reason I ask is because Alan and Adam were both purple-haired purple-haired <laughs> silver-haired purple eyes like the Valerians have so their heritage is very straightforward as far as that goes but we don't know if it just came directly from their father the that look or whether it was from both their parents it's an interesting little academic question there we wonder about the uh, the average genetics of the Valerian small folk and the minor nobility. For one thing, the Valerians, whichever settlers did come over with the original Valerians, surely it had to be some. They didn't just come, just their household and nobody. It would have, it would have only been about 250 to 300 years prior to all this. A pretty long time, but not a super, super long time. If they brought enough Valerian blood over, it would still, you'd still have a lot of silver-haired, purple-eyed people over there. So around 125 is the year she sold her shipyards, and this is when she made a tr bought a trading cog. It says that she used the proceeds to buy a trading cog, but surely she had a lot more left over because I don't know that you'd sell a place that makes ships and all you get is one ship out of a place that makes ships. So I figured there's a lot, lot left over for her to put in the bank there. She names her ship Mouse after her, and this is also really important for Adam and Alan because on this ship during her trading ventures is where Alan and Adam kind of cut their teeth in terms of sailing. First of all, they're growing up around a, a dock, a shipwright. So they're already growing up around sailors and naval types, but then they actually get to go sailing from a pretty early age and learn the ropes. <laughs> so that applies to sailing and become sailors for life. Basically, I guess Adam again, didn't have a chance to fulfill that full dream. And, and I guess flying a dragon is probably a little more interesting than sailing, but you know, for the rest of normal people, that's not an option. Super chat from Craig Mulvey. So glad I finally made a live stream. I'm really enjoying y'all's Fire and Blood coverage. Can't wait to hear your take on Oakenfist's unlikely rise. I'd call it unparalleled, but I doubt that will stop you. <laughs> yeah, it is a little unparalleled. I don't, like I said, it was hard to find one-to-one -one parallels for characters like him. I had to use three at least, and there's probably good other calls there that connecting to other characters. I'm sure it isn't limited to those three. Those are just three that stood out to me. And... When you have a rich, full life like this that we don't even have all the details on, there's bound to be some strong parallels out there. All right, this next section, rather this early first section, we can call it, besides the early life stuff, is called Dancing with Dragons. One of the first things that he and his brother were known for is Dancing with Dragons. Sea Smoke was kind of a Villarian dragon in a, in a way. Like, the dragons are mostly Targaryen, right? But Sea Smoke was kind of... Valerian. You know, the families are related. They share a lot of blood, so these things are kind of hard to be too distinct with, but Sea Snoke was... Sea Snoke? Whoa! I got Star Wars in there. Sea <laughs> Snoke, wow. Snoke's aquatic younger brother. That's when he... That out, that yeah. <laughs>
Altså, Sea Smoke <laughs> was written by Lenor and later written by Adam. So you can see why I'm like, this is kind of a Valerian dragon. Sea Smoke wasn't written by a person that had the name Targaryen. You can see why I categorize him that way. Lenor dies back in 120, I believe it was, and Sea Smoke has no rider for a while. But when the call for dragon seeds come, interestingly, it's not Adam and Alan who get to go first. It's Lord Commander Stefan Darklin, Rhaenyra's Kingsguard head, which is kind of weird because you wonder what they were thinking, right? How did this guy think he could do it? How, did he think he was a seed? Did he think he had dragon blood in his past? I guess he probably did. And that makes sense because the Darklands are the one of the closest families to the Targaryens. They had seven members join the Kingsguard over their span. And so I'm guessing maybe they had a princess in their history that was married into their family from the Targaryens. It's got to be something, right? I don't think this Darkland guy's just like, yeah, I can do this. I don't need dragon blood. Because so much of this is made about dragon seeds. So I don't know. It kind of seems strange to me that he would just, I don't have dragon blood, but I'm doing this. So he probably did. And of course, the Valerians do have dragon blood. That's very straightforward. But it gets a little, a little off here with thinking about where the dragon blood comes from. Adam apparently has no trouble taming sea smoke. We don't hear about any issue, no, no struggle, no danger. It just, it just happened. It probably did happen on Driftmark, though, because that's where sea smoke probably was. I almost called him sea smoke again. And this may have emboldened Alan to try because it worked for his brother, although I think he was probably already pretty eager to try because he seems to have that kind of personality. Yeah, like I wanted to say here, the Dragon Rider implications are kind of weird. I talked about House Darklin and how maybe they have something going on. But if Lenor isn't the father of Adam and Alan, which we believe, then it makes it a little trickier to see where the dragon blood came from. Certainly some in the past, some Targaryen bride marrying into House Valerian makes sense. But we don't actually know who that is. It would actually make a lot of sense if it was Lenor, because Lenor is the son of Rhaenys, who is definitely a Targaryen. So that, in one sense, is the only bit of evidence that points to Lenor being the father of Adam and Alan. But it's too little. It's not enough evidence, given all the other counter evidence. I see some people in the chat are wondering if Marilda was a dragon scene. Hey, you know what? I didn't consider that, and it's 100% possible. 100% possible. So there's a couple of different ways this dragon blood could have gotten into their veins, so to speak. And once again, this comes with a caveat, if that's even necessary. So next up is Sheepstealer, which is more in line with Alan, because he is trying to tame Sheepstealer. He first tries for Grey Ghost, which presumably, he, of course, he had to go to Dragonstone to do this. That's where Grey Ghost lives. And he pre presumably had his brother's help. Because, like, walking around looking for Grey Ghost on foot sounds kind of <laughs> not very likely to work. But if Adam is flying around on sea smoke, that's a lot more effective, I would think. So he tries for Sheepstealer instead because he can't find Grey Ghost. And this is really brave. Sheepstealer kills twice as many seeds as the other wild dragons combined. Now, that's a loaded statement. The other, quote-unquote, the other wild dragons combined? There's only three wild dragons, as in wild ones who hadn't been tamed before. So <laughs> that means Sheepstealer killed twice as many dragon seeds as Grey Ghost and the Cannibal combined. And well, we just pointed out that Grey Ghost is really hard to find. People probably didn't have, try to ride Grey Ghost that often. So that means that all these deaths are on the Cannibal. The Cannibal, <laughs> who is older and scarier. So Sheepstealer killed more dragon seeds than the Cannibal. 
Part of that's because the cannibal is scarier and people are smart enough not to even try in the first place. But still, any way you slice it, this is really, really brave. And we don't even think Alan tried for the cannibal. Because he's small and quick, this is probably part of why he survived. Sheepstealer was kind of known to the people of Driftmark already because he, ran- he or she ranged that far to find sheep. That may have been another reason why Alan was particularly aware of Sheepstealer and aiming to tame him, her, versus the cannibal for all the other reasons that he wouldn't want to try to tame the cannibal. I'm just really switching my N's and M's today. I just said cannibal. <laughs> Is that some sort of disease, N and M switching? I don't know, but I have it today. I am infected with NMitis. When the bonding attempt with Sheepstealer went badly, he got burned. And maybe this, maybe I'm exaggerating how much his quickness helped him because it also says that his brother flew sea sea smoke in, (laughs) almost did it again, and rescued him, drove off Sheepstealer. Now, interestingly, a little side note. Alan's career, full of success, full of wins. But one thing he's, another thing, one of two things he's maybe not so good at, money was one of them. Another one is patience. We see here that patience is what worked for Nettles. Nettles got Sheep Stealer by being patient. And Alan just went for it, didn't work, and moved on. So I think that's a good little note, important to, to take into account here. Not long after the taming of Sea Smoke, Corlys, uh, the sea snake, not the sea snake, petitions Rhaenyra, not Rhaenyra, to legitimize them, and she does. And Adam is named heir to Driftmark as well, because he immediately becomes the eldest Valerian in line. And now there's a little bit of stuff with the Valerians who are in line for the... Rhaenyra's Valerians who are in line for the Iron Throne, but that's another side of you. We're not going to bother with the, talking about that. Adam fights in the Battle of the Gullet, which was that really bloody, nasty battle where Aegon III was traumatized, where Viserys was captured, where a whole bunch of ships were sunk, where Jacarys and Vermax died. It affected him. Adam was, I don't know, trauma might not be the right word, but it probably is. And he went and talked to Lord Corlys about it. And surely, given his closest to his brother, Alan heard about it. So Alan's first experience, quote unquote, with war would have been hearing about it from his brother. And it didn't seem to dampen his enthusiasm for ambition, but it maybe was a little bit sobering. And of course, it's going to be a really big deal, their relationship. And there's lots of evidence that Alan, or at least some very specifically strong points of evidence that Alan had a lot of respect for his brother. Of course, at this point, Adam's already saved his life once. So... I don't know, he's got a lot to be grateful for, even if they weren't tight, and it seems like they were tight. And of course, all other thing that happened in the Battle of Gullet, besides this personal stuff, is that Driftmark took heavy losses, not just ships, but they got invaded. High Tide, the really cool Valerian castle that Drafturgy is making some awesome art for us to show during the Sea Snake episode, was sacked, and that's where he had all his... Eastern treasures the sea snake had from his all his voyages. He collected them there, all his insane wealth. The reason they were rated above the Lannisters and High Towers, destroyed. So this is a huge loss for the Valerians. And this is also the beginning of other things going bad for the Valerians. He was at Driftmark, Alan, when the alliance between the Valerians and Targaryens fell apart due to Rhaenyra and her council's kind of inexplicable paranoia with regard to bastards. I guess it's not inexplicable, it's just crazy. Over the beliefs that non-bastards, especially nobility, have about bastards and 
how little trust they can have for them is just never ceases to be over the top. But but it's consistent. So it's not it's not like I don't think it's not realistic, given what George has laid out. They move to arrest Adam, the one dragon rider in town, because the rest of them are out doing other stuff or dead. But Corlise, after arguing vociferously that this is not only dumb, but unnecessary and yeah, just all these bad ideas. He points out all the things that is wrong with this idea. And since they don't listen to him, he goes and warns his son and Adam escapes. They figure out or assume that he warned him. And I mean, they were right. And he was then treated roughly and thrown in a cell. Adam responds to this accusation of treason in the most noble way imaginable. Not by turning sides, which is what a lot of people would do. They would, it would be like, you think I'm your enemy? Well, fine, I'm going to be your enemy. That's how you're going to treat me. Instead, he just one-ups them and says, oh, I'm not loyal. I'm going to show you loyal. And he flies around to a lot of the castles that are still semi-loyal to the Blacks' cause, gets a ragtag army of 4,000 formed together by racing to these different castles and getting as much support as possible, and saves King's Landing. I mean, it's incredible what he did. And it's another really bloody battle that he participates in, the Second Battle of Tumbleton. And it stops the Greens' advance on King's Landing, like I said. But, of course, it also featured a lot of losses, like Adam himself, as well as a lot of other people who are maybe not so relevant for this episode. Other than trying to tame Sheepstealer, Alan was very much in his brother's shadow at this point. He didn't have a dragon. He didn't have this amazing display of loyalty, which... I have to think permanently impacted how people saw bastards. I mean, he, Adam wasn't just representing his house and himself. He was representing all bastards. He was like, look, this is bull. <laughs> we are just, we can be just as loyal as anybody else. We aren't made differently in the, in the way y'all think. It's a pretty cool underrated scene in the Dance of the Dragons and in Fire and Blood and World of West Fire because it pops up there as well. But it's huge for Alan on a personal level for trying to get in his shoes and in his head. It's a monstrous incident in his life, especially considering how young he is. He's like 15-ish at this point. From this point on, though, he's no longer going to be in the shadows. He basically takes the stage and keeps it starting now. And this is where he's like a character that I didn't mention for a parallel because other, he's not really like this character that much. But in this moment, he kind of is. And it's like Rob. He's a 15-year-old young lord in charge of an ancient house because the young king has his father in prison. Which Corlys is still alive at this point, but he's in prison just like Ned was. And he's a bit like John vaguely here because his badass serious brother died a hero without heirs of his own. And he becomes the heir of his serious badass brother, John, just like Adam. Alan, rather. But the huge difference between Alan and John, among other things, and with Rob, is Alan had a lot more military power. Especially because dragons were effectively off the table at this point. Ships are always powerful, but ships, when there's no dragons, way more powerful. Because ships versus dragons is bad, bad, bad news for the ships, even when they get lucky and take out a dragon like uh, they did in the gullet. The other side effect of the sea snake being thrown in jail meant mass defections of Velarian men, who simply just melted away from King's Landing, catching ship here and there, making their way back to Driftmark, and coming back as part of Alan's army. And this army of Alans is interesting. He had a little bit of a tough spot here because he's got his father in jail and he can't just go buck wild attacking things. 
the most important thing is to keep his father alive. So he has to be threatening so that they can't just kill his father without worry of retribution. But if he gets too aggressive, then they can kill his father in their version of retribution. So it's a bit of a tightrope walk. But I said that Aegon II had the sea snake in prison, but he didn't personally have him in prison because he himself, Aegon II, was still trapped on Dragonstone because Sunfire was dead. It was Cregan Stark who had thrown the sea snake in jail back then. We have a lot of different confusing back and forth ambitions and things that people are aiming for here. So what he was trying to do is planning to attract, attack Dragonstone to maybe capture Aegon II and do some sort of trade, like capture Aegon, trade Aegon for his father. Maybe kind of like Rob would have considered Jaime swapping for Ned before that became impossible because Ned's head was separated from his body. So there is no steps of Baylor moment for the sea snake. I guess Alan's ships were more of a threat than Rob's host. And Rhaenyra was a lot more like Cersei than Joffrey. And Alicent also was around, and she was there to cut a deal. I'm sorry, I misspoke when I said Cregan Stark threw Sea Snake in jail. That's later. This time it was Alicent who freed Corlys from prison and cut a deal with him, which had him joining the Greens in exchange for peace, which meant Alan had to back off because his father's still in charge. And... That means that Aegon now gets to come to King's Landing and Alan gets to bring him <laughs> as the guy with all the ships. And he does this. This is one of the first of many examples of him being insolent. And he does this by bringing Aegon II on Mouse, the ship named for his mother. And it's a small ship, you know, not a not the kind of not the state galley, not a big fancy warship. So it was done as an insult. Definitely. <laughs> But very soon after all this, the Sea Snake switches sides again in the name of peace. This is when Cregan Stark comes up and Aegon II turns up dead of poison, also in the name of peace. So again, Alan's presence and the threat of the Valerian fleet is cited as a reason that the Sea Snake is allowed to live, meaning that Cregan allows him to live. But of course, as we detailed last week, Black Alley Blackwood probably had the most to do with that. But Aegon III also pardoned the Sea Snake, and we know that, unlike, say, Unwin Peak, Cregan actually listened to Aegon III's underage decrees, at least most of the time. So Alan's men, who are probably feeling like some sort of boomerang at this point, they're just back and forth like, we're blacks, we're greens, we're blacks again. We're, wait, there are no blacks or greens, but who are our enemies? So now these guys who would just picked up a passenger at Dragonstone and dropped him off, are now returning to it to attack it, to clear out the remaining loyalists of Aegon II. Soon after, Aegon III ascends, and boom, we've got a coronation for Aegon III, and Alan is there for the coronation, along with his, who I've written in the notes, his father-grandfather, <laughs> Corlys. Super chat here, let me get to, before we continue the story. From Fred Targaryen's Uncle Daddy. Just want to throw some support your way. Too lazy to go through the whole Patreon process. Well, thanks. We appreciate it. Any way you want to do your support, money is money. It doesn't have to come through Patreon, right? We have a donation button on our website as well. New Hand of the King, Tylan Lannister, commissions 50 new galleys, perhaps to end the dependency on House Valerian and prevent them from having such power in Blackwater Bay. So not only are the Valerians so such a powerhouse at sea, which, again, wasn't a, as big a problem as recently as a couple years prior because of the presence of dragons. But now, this is a new Westeros. 
And military power takes a different form. The hierarchy is different in that regard. Also think it's important to mention that because the Hightowers and Lannisters were second fiddle to Valerian wealth, although maybe not at this point because of the loss of High Tide, maybe that's a bit of the undertone here as well, that a little bit of, hey, the Lannisters, just like the Baratheons and some other houses, kind of wanted to unseat the Valerians as the number two house in Westeros. And anything to take power away from House Valerian is going to be towards that goal. We also have the first appearance of Recalio Rendoon, who betrays the Triarchy and starts being the pirate king that he is, and by taking part of the Stepstones. Now that's going to become a really big factor in this coming up for Alan, because he's going to have to deal with Rendoon multiple times, as is a lot of Westeros, as is a lot of the Free Cities. He becomes pretty darn important. Let's take a second here and talk about some of the parallels from the parallel live standpoint. Early on, you see some of the parallels to Davos, the stuff with Orain Waters and Daemon Targaryen, you see only a little of to this point. With Daemon, you get some of the insolence and the being who he wants to be and the aggressiveness and obviously dealing with the Stepstones, spending a lot of time fighting pirates and, and wars in the Stepstones. With Orain Waters, well, Orain Waters is a Valerian and he is was a bastard and he's ambitious, and he's changes sides a few times, so there you go. And with Davos, it's more of the always treated badly by nobility, but always does a great job. Kind of, on in terms of merit, he's great, but always kind of insulted and pushed aside or just not listened to because of his bastardy. And that is a very common theme with Alan going forward. We're going to see him constantly insulted, pushed back on, and set aside, despite most people in his position, like, say, Paxter Redwine or some of these other guys who control huge fleets. People are always deferring to them and being very wary of their power. But it's not the way Alan is treated in a lot of cases by some people. Some people are wisely wary of his power, but a lot of them treat him as if he's a nobody, which is so strange because he's so not a nobody. He's very powerful. After things break out in the Narrow Sea, things are going on still in King's Landing. There's a lot happening there with the Regency and Hour of the Wolf, of course, which we covered. The Sea Snake dies pretty early in all this at age 79 in the year 132, early 132, and the dance ended in 131. So again, he wasn't around all that long for the aftermath, even though his role was very crucial. So Alan and his mother, Marilda Mouse, bring him back to Driftmark in state on a ship called Maiden's Kiss, which is, I guess, one of their biggest, most fancy ships. And he immediately claims the lordship because, of course, he is. He's the heir. It shouldn't really be a matter of dispute, but this is Driftmark. We're talking about an incredibly powerful castle, and there's other Valerians out there. And here's where we remember that incident a while back when Sir Vaymond went to King Viserys and, and said, hey, I should have Driftmark. All those kids are strongs. And of course, what he got for that was his tongue pulled out. Well, I'm sorry. He didn't get his tongue pulled out. His descendants got their tongues pulled out. He got killed and burned, fed to Cyrax. But his descendants were still around, some of them who still didn't have their tongues, including one named Sir Malentine and another named Sir Rogar. I believe both of them were tongueless. They tried to assassinate Alan, but they failed. Malentine was killed. Rogar was captured. He took the black. 
So Allen, I guess, defended himself. He probably fought off some of these guys. Hey, small and quick, right? That might be a factor here. Not that he has anything really in common, all that in common with Chadrick the Mad Mouse, but it's hard to not think of small and quick dude and the word mouse and not think of him. Maybe there's more parallels than I think. You've got the whole, he's trying to capture Sansa, whereas Oakenfist is the guy that rescues another long-lost heir, hidden heir in Viserys. Eh, maybe there's more to it. Y'all work on that for me. <laughs> Other Valerian's cousins, Damien and Daron, are reconciled with Alan rather than continuing to contest this claim. And they get a deal. They get lands on Driftmark. They get lower level, lord level deals, I suppose you'd call that. So they get some land, they get some income, enough land to build ships on because part of the deal is they're ordered to provide ships to the Valerian fleet. So clearly they're getting a decent deal here. Now, Daron's an interesting character because he is going to be the father of Daenera, who becomes the queen and gives birth to the three princesses in the tower and Baylor the Blessed, and very relevantly, the young dragon, Daron I, who Alan Oakenfist has a long career, well, an important part of his career working with. And he also, even probably as important, is his relationship to one of the three princesses in the tower, Elena. He has an affair with her, and yeah, that's pretty huge. This family connection stays uh, pretty strong here. But this is all of this, and he's not even 16 yet. Alan Valerian. <laughs> wow, right? So at this point, he now is 16, a little while after this succession issue for Driftmark. He, ambitious, proud, sails right into King's Landing and says, hey, Corlys Valerian, my father-grandfather, I don't know what term he used, he probably had to say the official line of grandfather, was on the small council, and I should get his seat. Well, you know, our modern sensibilities are like, that is so wrong. These are not hereditary posts. We shouldn't be passing down government posts to your descendants. But we all know that is how it works in Westeros quite often. That's quite normal for a seat given to a family member pa being sort of held for that family if that family member dies. For example, Oberyn just showed up to claim his brother's seat on the small council that was given to him. And now they're just kind of passing that off to the, uh, to which one? Tyene, I believe. But they're like, no. Again, the Lannister, Tylen Lannister, maybe again as a kind of slight power play here, says, no, you're too young. And Unwin Peak is selected instead. Oops. <laughs> that was not a good play. So the Council of Regents does the kind of stuff they always do, which is do their governing. And a big part of their governing is making marriages. And making marriages is always a big thing during aftermath, after a big old civil war, part of the healing process is, is binding up the wounds with marriages. One of these marriages, they decide, is Bela, as in Bela, who rode Moondancer and helped finish off Sunfire and badly hurt Aegon II even more. That Bela was going to be married off to Thaddeus Rowan. Thaddeus Rowan, decent dude, but 40 years older than her and not ideal at all. So she pulls a, I guess you could say pulls an Alisan and runs off, goes to Alan Valerian himself and says, hey, they're trying to marry me to Rowan. You're my cousin. And hey, you know, this is wrong. And from Alan's point of view, there's a lot to like here. One, if he has a son with Bela, he, that kid would be Aegon III's heir until Aegon had his own son. 
And we know this because that's what they were saying about Thaddeus and Bela. They were saying, hey, if Thaddeus and Bela have a son, that kid's the heir to Aegon unless he, until he has his own kid. And Aegon, again, is still really young at this point. So he's not going to have kids anytime soon. So that's an obvious angle for Alan to be like, ooh, that's, that's a good way. That's ambition right there. That's a good way to get closer to the throne. But there's even more here, which is that Bela's a hot princess. <laughs> that's, ex that's exactly his age, basically. Like, they're within a year of each other. And he's a martial-type brave badass, and so is she. You know, it's, relationships aren't that simple, but <laughs> there's, you can see how they could have gotten along. And later on, they would fight a lot, but they always seem to make up. You know, two fiery people. But here's where one of these insults come. They look down on Alan as someone who had, quote, a snake for a sire, a mouse for a mother. Is this to be our prince consort? They really do not like the idea that Bela's kid could be the heir. They really don't like that because, well, because of all the stuff I just said about her. They didn't like her that much, to be honest. And they definitely didn't like Alan that much either. So this is a lot of insulting of him and more of their thoughts on bastardy, calling him upjumped and all that. Now, Aegon Third is friendly with Alan. He likes him. He's like a lot of people, doesn't think of this too much in terms of politics. He's a good guy to have on your side. And so he tries to appoint him as Lord Admiral slash Master of Ships. Remember, at this point, that title was kind of both. It was both Lord Admiral and Master of Ships. But the council undoes all those appointments because they're like, nope, you're too young. You don't get to make appointments yet. So no, they're not like Krieg and Stark at all. They go against him on just about everything. But to assuage the people that Aegon III had named to different positions, they give those guys other jobs instead. So they say, hey, oh, you offered this guy a job? Sorry, Aegon III, that's not going to happen. But we're going to give him a job anyway, so he's still, he's not too unhappy. Except Alan. They don't give him anything. He was offered master of ships by the king, and, and the council says, no, that doesn't count. Instead, it goes to Gedmund Peak, who is not even a sailor and is clearly related to the new <laughs> power player, Mr. Unwin Peak. Mr.? Yeah, Mr. We'll go with Mr., not Lord. And here's where there's another Orane Waters vibe coming up here. A Lannister orders the building of 10 new warships, exactly what Cersei did in A Feast for Crows. And when they were finished, yeah, Orane ran off with them. And while we don't know what happened to these 10 warships specifically, it's part of the fleet that gets added here to deal with all this stuff that's happening in the Narrow Sea, which is the Triarchy and Recalio Rendoon. And the point is, we don't have to get into all the reasons those, those groups are fighting. The point is that it messes trade up badly, both from the pirate activity attacking ships and the less piratical, more tyrannical high taxes being charged on any ship that passes through. That's kind of what they're fighting over, the right to charge tolls through the Stepstones. It's all about money. That's, the, <laughs> that's it. money and power, as usual. Not long after this is when Oakenfist becomes Oakenfist. We, with the, stand, this, the situation is that Pentos controls part of the Stepstones, Rendoon the rest, Bravos the seas north of that. Now, the way this plays out is the Valerian fleet is added to this war fleet. It's a big one. He has 200 just himself. So I'm not really sure. I don't, either it's not listed or I didn't figure out how many ships it was, but Alan alone brought 200. This is a really big fleet. And there's a great quote here. He doesn't like the idea of giving command over. And what happens is Ned Bean, who is an experienced sailor at least, is sent to take over the Valerian fleets. And Alan says, no. 
They are my fleets now, and Bela's monkey is more suited to command them than Uncle Gedman. That's what he says when the announcement is made. But when Ned Bean comes over to take command, he sends him back and says, I would have hanged him, but I am loath to waste good hemp and rope on a bean. Another of his kind of salty quotes, salty being a pretty perfect one for a sailor. I like that line a lot, good waste good hemp and rope on a bean. Let's take two minutes here to talk about Ned Bean. I think it's hilarious. I posted this on Twitter yesterday that a character named Ned Bean, who obviously reminds us simultaneously of Ned Stark and Sean Bean, who is, you know, kind of the same guy. <laughs> and this Ned Bean character does not die during this story at all. Either it, There's not even like a hint that he died. He just enters the story and then kind of fades away. Maybe he'll die in Fire and Blood too. So we, we can hope that this injustice, this wrong can be righted because it's just, it's just way too unrealistic. A guy named Ned Bean isn't killed, right? Come on. Who are we dealing with here? Have you ever heard the phrase, pay a little now or a lot later? It applies extremely well to taking care of your teeth. The more you do now, the less you'll have to do later. You can save even more by going to smilebrilliant.com and using the code Westeros to save 20% on a variety of dental products like teeth whitening, toothbrushes of both the electric and regular variety, night guards, and a whole variety of other things. Once again, that's smilebrilliant.com using the code Westeros for 20% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thank you to other Patreon supporters who get mid-roll shoutouts. We do have shoutouts for various levels of contribution that depend on the amount and the choice that you make with your, with your donations. And for this time, let's see, what do I have here? There they are. We have our Blood Rider patrons, of course, who are Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt. Kohokali, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow. And Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip. Also going to shout out our Ironborn captains. Black Matto Stormrider, captain of the Rusted Hinge. Oisan the Wanderer, captain of Naga's Living Flame. Sir Selvus Redblade of White Harbor, captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chuck Laws, Captain of the Droma Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil. John Gregor, Captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Sir Kiron of Lonely Light, Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Dromond armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen, Archer Queen, Captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate, Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just, Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift. Lord Mitch of House Bailey, Captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. Beneath the Gold, a podcast focusing on lesser-known Song of Ice and Fire characters which I would think is something that fans of our show would be very into. And Phantom of House Physics, the Sunset King, Plato Oplomo, Captain of Leviathan's Banshee. All right, let's get back to it. What we were talking about is these, all this sh constant shifting of alliances between the, these powers in the Narrow Sea. As Gedmund Peak and Ned Bean and Alan Valerian reach Tarth, they hang out there for a minute and regroup and discover that the political situation has changed dramatically. Pentos is now out of the deal. Tyrosh has entered the deal. 
And Rindoon and Bravos have agreed to rule the Stepstones to kind of together instead of fighting over it. So a pretty huge change in the political landscape. And so Gedmund, taking the longer-term route, decides to write King's Landing and say, hey, the political situation has changed. What should we do now? Are we still going after Rindoon? Or are we doing something different? Alan is not into this. He doesn't like waiting. He wants to take the element of surprise. So he does. <laughs> he just does it on his own. He's like, yeah, I'm going to attack. I got 200 ships. Let's do this. But the weird thing is, is he attacks the Bravosi, which he had to have something in mind here. I mean, if they're controlling the narrow sea and he's House Valerian, I think this is more of his ambition. But it was clearly not what the Iron Throne wanted. When he returns victorious to cheering crowds because everyone loves a winner and he was quite a winner people love him and so that makes it hard to go against him politically when you're that popular now the actual incident when he gets his name i don't want to skip over that as they're bashing the bravosi who were totally taken by surprise one particularly large bravosi ship called the grand defiance which is a dromond itself 400 oars a big big ship escapes the press of ships, only to find that Queen Rhaenys, Oakenfist's ship at the time, was kind of waiting for it, or waiting for something like that, and he gets full steam ahead, well, speed ahead, no steam power yet, <laughs> and rams the broadside of the Grand Defiance with their big oaken fist, a big oaken ram, and sinks it. Just, that's that. Crushes this big, huge warship, and... This sort of how the whole battle went for the Bravosi. They, they only killed like three enemy ships and lost, you know, half of theirs, S several of which were captured. So Oakenfist came out ahead, even though he lost three ships, he captured more than that. And lots of loot and hostages and an elephant, the elephant, which gives us another of his insolent moments where Peak is just yelling at him for, for attacking the Bravosi and bringing war to King's Landing against the Bravosi, who are such a mighty naval power. He just kind of smarmy about it. He says, don't forget the elephant. <laughs> and Peek, being a clever man, has his own way of playing this situation. How do you handle a really brave, popular hero who's kind of messing up your plans for everything? Well, we like Oakenfist. I mean, I think most of us do. We certainly like him more than Unwin Peek. That's, that's not a tough sell, I think. But from Peek's point of view, I think he handles this kind of cleverly. It doesn't really work out for him, but it's a pretty smooth move. You gotta, you gotta give it to Peek. He's good at being bad. <laughs> one little side note before Peek, though. One real loss besides those three ships, which were made, made good by capturing others, is that he lost that cousin Daron, the one who's the father of Daenera. And this brings him close to Daenera because Daron's wife, the mother of Daenera, is also dead by this point. So young Daenera is fostered with the Valerians, especially with Bela, because Alan, you know, he's always out doing other stuff. But he knew her, and that's important. That's going to come up pretty big. So now he is named, sort of named Master of Ships again, but it's sort of temporary. <laughs> and it's also one of these poisoned gifts. It's kind of like Euron. Unwin's being like Euron here. The gift of Master of Ships here comes with a mission. And that mission is a tough one, a really tough one. It turns out to be the first of six of Alan's great voyages. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about what we know about the other voyages later, which is sad to say, except for the first and second, we know very little about them. And we don't even know that much about the second one. But we do have some some clues and some guesses, but we'll get to that. So this is 133, roughly a year after war is over, but also Coralise is dead by this point. Of course, he was dead by 132. We don't know how many kids Bela and Alan had, and George just says many. But the first one is Elena, a girl named Lena. We do know that Okenfist wanted a boy named Corlys. And since he got many kids, I assume one of them was a boy, so it was probably a Corlys. But we don't actually know that for sure. Maybe he had all girls. It's possible. The plan is he has to sail all the way from King's Landing slash Driftmark all the way to the Iron Islands. Dorne is a really difficult place to sail around. And it's perilous just for that part. And of course, the more perilous part is facing the Ironborn at sea. So he's cautious on the way. He's a, he kind of behaves a little differently. Maybe he's learned a few things. Maybe he's wary. Maybe he knows that Unwin is, is uh, setting him up a little bit here. But mostly it's just he knows what's going on. He knows Rindun still has all this power in the sea stone or in the sea stone, in the stepstones. And there's a lot he has to and he also has to preserve his strength because if he gets into these fights ahead of time before facing the Red Kraken, well, that's already a tough order to beat the Red Kraken. So he needs to be at full strength when he gets there. So it's very important for him to not get into battles or into situations that cause him to lose strength while he's on the way. So that's his first stop, basically. Rindun is a really fascinating character. And since he doesn't want to fight, he sails in by himself when just his ship and says, hey, let's talk. And he ends up staying there for like a fortnight. So pretty good length of time. You wonder what his captains were doing back on their ships. Like, should we be worried yet? What's going on? Because Rindun's a tricky, tricky guy and also maybe mad. I'd love to spend more time talking about him, but we probably don't have a whole lot of time to do that. But I will at least say he has vibes of Dario and Euron and other characters that are just really out there. He cross-dresses, he's got uncertain origin, he's an incredible warrior, he believes in all the gods, he dyes his beard purple and orange, just a really interesting character, very different one day to the next, you know, not very consistent guy, except for consistently ambitious and uh, weird. (laughs) So the final deal is also weird. Three ships, an alliance written in blood on sheepskin, and a kiss which was arranged differently. I don't know if Rendun was wanting a kiss from Alan or from somebody, but the actual deal settled on was that if he ever came to Driftmark, he would get a kiss from Lady Bela. And this was after Rendun wanted Alan to impregnate multiple of his wives, which is kind of weird, but on the other hand, it might be a matter of ambition. If Rendun has a boy with Alan's blood, he could come claim Driftmark with that, potentially. And this is a pirate king, so you don't want to give pirate kings claims to your lands, even indirectly like that. And I think this is maybe a bit even more cleverness on Rendun's part, because we know that Alan was promiscuous. He had all these lovers, and he was handsome, so a lot of women got his attention, even if he wasn't necessarily sleeping with them. He was getting noticed by a lot of women, getting lots of attention, so... Rendun may have heard of this reputation and thought this was a good way to, you know, get him to slip up. But it doesn't seem likely that it happened. We don't know that it did. We certainly don't know that it didn't either. So he moves on from there with after that alliance is in place and stops in Dorne next, where he meets Eliandra Martell, who is considered the new Nymeria. We talked about her a bit in our Nymeria series. And she's one of the people into him. 
And kind of like the inverse here happens where they sail up with so many ships that Doran is alarmed and like, "Uh oh, why are all these ships here? But they have no ability to fight them. So they may as well greet them friendly and say, hey, what's up, friends? And that is how it goes, because, of course, we do know that Alan Valerian had no military designs on Dorne, in part because Aleandra and Alan get along so well and maybe sleep together, but that's disputed by a lot. Regardless of whether they did, it definitely pissed off her suitors, of which she had many. And they get food and water and go on their way. On the way to the High Tower, we have a little more art from Fire and Blood, where we have Alan's ships facing a storm west of Salt Shore. Nothing too interesting about that. You know, it's, storms are always bad. But it's proof of what I was saying, that it's no small thing to sail around Dorne. And I guess they didn't face whirlpools. Actually, I think Aleandra gives them a map to show them how to avoid the whirlpools. Just imagine how difficult it would have been if they didn't have this whirlpool map to help them avoid. So then he gets to Old Town and gets to the high tower. He's greeted by Lord Lionel very pleasantly. And this is good because this is, you know, the high tower is the spot of the, the main power base for the Greens, which, you know, that's all died down, but it's not completely died down. And he gets along really well with Lady Samantha, the one who rode in on the horse to the high, to the, the high sept there, who she's really cool. And he gets along well with her. We can see why. They both, they both have these kind of similar personalities, perhaps. So all this is, goes a long way towards settling some of these old grievances between blacks and greens, seeing these important figures get along. This is also where he hears the news about the Maiden's Day Ball. So in other words, he hears that Daenera, his ward, is going to marry the king. So that's good news for him and good news for his wife, because he's almost certainly aware that his wife and his wife's sister, Raina, are the ones that presented Daenera to the king. And while he's at the, at the high tower, he gets the promise of more naval strength, which is great news also. 20 ships from the high tower, 30 more for the arbor. And while he's waiting for them to be outfitted and crewed and all that, he goes to the citadel, which is, of course, what all of us would do. <laughs> Check out those old books, old naval battles about ships, Valyrian books, scrolls, things like that, which I figure has got to be some of the same books Alyssa Farman studied earlier, which I think is really cool. That's kind of like, it fits into the parallels, I guess you could say, but it's just, they're, they're following each other's footsteps. And I guess some of these books he may have heard about from his father as well, maybe specific books that Corlys had mentioned. So that's just really cool. I love all that. I love these, I love the, the, the book connections like that. He goes north after a little while. He is impatient again, doesn't wait for the Arbor f fleets to show up. They're, they're taking too long. And he says, ah, we're fine. We got enough ships. He sails off with the high tower ships. And then... Gets even more ships from the Shield Islands, which is cool. The Shield Islands are, of course, all about fighting the Ironborn. They're like, they would not have it said that someone attacked the Ironborn and that they weren't a part of it. They have been defending against the Ironborn for millennia. But again, right after this, another storm hits and some more damage is done. But none of this matters <laughs> because Dalton Greyjoy is killed by a woman named Tess, who we know very little about, just in bed. She, he was asleep. She did the thing that Ygritte says, you know, when John's like, well, what if you have a husband that beats you? And she says, well, then I'll cut his throat at night, you know? <laughs> well, that's what happened here. It's easier said than done, but it can be done. And it was done here. Unfortunately, she kills herself because she knows that being caught having done this, she would be tortured to death, probably not just something as relatively painless, like jumping out a window, uh, comparatively. So... He just goes to Lannisport and meets up with the Lannisters and hangs out there a bit. And 
goes back to the high tower and on the way runs into that late red wine fleet but they hang out they they have a meal together and it's all cool then no one's mad at least not to a point that that is recorded he goes back around no apparently less trouble sailing around Dorne this time and goes back to hang out with Aleandra a bit and that upsets her suitors again and more rumors fly but of course part of the reason he had to stop there was to resupply while there, a huge moment, he meets Drazenko Rogare. Now, half of this works out really well. The other half doesn't. The, the half that doesn't work out is that Rogare, the Rogare bank becomes a big deal and they become friendly with the Valarians. And of course, the Rogare bank goes under and the Valarians lose a ton of wealth. But that's coming up a little bit later. For now, the part that works out well is that the way it's presented in Fire and Blood, it's kind of, it builds the suspense a bit. If you were really on top of your game while reading it, you knew what was going on because we already know from the World of Ice and Fire that Oakenfist brings back Viserys. Actually, I don't know if we knew it was Oakenfist, but we knew that Viserys was recovered around this time. And so again, Oakenfist gets to be the hero. He sails, a double hero in this case, he sails around to deal with the Red Kraken, even though he didn't fight a single battle, not a single ship engagement. It was just the danger of sailing, which is, you know, not to be despised. He's still treated like a hero, even though he didn't actually beat the guy. The guy was just killed. Unwin Peak at this point is paranoid that Oaken, that he's so popular. Oakenfist is so popular that he's going to take his job as hand. Peak's fears are somewhat realized when he returns. And there's this really big crowd moment, like this big happy moment where people are cheering. He shows up, sails into the harbor, steps off the ships, probably gets this big smile on his face, looking all fancy and successful. His wife meets him on the dock and hands him their kid who he hadn't met yet. This is Lena, the daughter. He hadn't met her yet. So he gets to hold her above the crowd and the crowd yells. Then he kneels to the king and queen, which he, I guess he hadn't done yet or at least maybe he had, but he was kind of renewing his fealty, whatever, you know, the, the standard kneeling before the king that everyone does. But then he just really nails the moment, the way he kind of leads the crowd along and drops this surprise on their heads. Unwin Peak tries to kind of undo it. He's just so impatient. He's like, who is it? Who's that person in the hood? And he just rushes up and it's just kind of funny, the scene, but it's it turns out to be young Viserys, which Aegon III had so much guilt over leaving Viserys during the Battle of the Gullet. And it was a big part of his trauma. That is big part, which is a big part of his character. Wow, is this a big win for Alan, not just for the crowd, but now the king is like, man, you brought back my brother, my long last brother. I, I you know, thank you for that. That's who he's got. He's the main person he has to thank for it. Another kind of bad thing about this, and it leads to the, it feeds into the whole Rogari bank deal, is that Oakenfist is not great with money, potentially. Maybe we're making too much of this one example. But his negotiations with the Rogar with the Rogares for the release of Viserys involved him giving up a ton of value, just a, an insane amount of wealth to get this back or to get him back. And maybe they were partly charging for Viserys's egg because Viserys had a dragon egg with him. And we know those are worth a ton. So I'm guessing the ransom included the value of that dragon egg. However, this didn't prove to be a big problem for the Iron Throne. It did prove to be a big problem for Alan personally. But because the Rogaris went belly up, the Iron Throne was able to say, oh, well, our deal, our ransom deal was with them, not with the city of Lys. So we don't have to pay. 
So this ruinous ransom never became ruinous because it wasn't paid. And uh, for so all these reasons, all this popularity, right? Because he's this hero of the red defeating the Red Kraken and dealing with Rindoon, even though he didn't defeat him, but he still met him. And I'm sure there's all these stories being told about him, all these rumors and gossip, and then sailed to El- meet with Alejandra. Just all these people he's dealing with, all these important people he's talking to who all seem to like him. You can see why he's incredibly popular. Plus, he's young and handsome and really rich, and he's married to a princess. Unwin didn't really have that much to worry about, but you can see why he did. You know, if you put yourself in his position, which is awkward because no one wants to be like Unwin for a minute. But if we do that, it's, yeah, it's like, ah, I can see why he was worried. This guy is incredibly popular, incredibly successful, and his star just keeps rising. But it wasn't all good. We have the incident where, like the Targaryens did... We see maybe a bit of encroachment there where Alan and Bela give an egg to Lena, their daughter, who is a Valarian, not a Targaryen. And well, maybe the gods were listening. Maybe this effrontery was noticed because this is that incident where the egg hatches and it's a blind, monstrous hatchling that immediately rips a chunk of flesh from baby Lena's arm. Luckily, Alan was there and he grabbed it and... Killed it really quickly. Yikes. Like, what was that about? Is this something to do with the drop-off of magic that, that is related to the dragons dying or is similarly timed with the dragons dying out? And maybe that's affecting dragon bursts or this is just some strange defect in this particular dragon egg. A lot of possibilities there. And of course, all his closeness with the Rogares dealing with this, you know, giving them such a great deal and just dealing with them at all and all their gains of power widely suspected that he's just too close with them. Another thing that Peek is paranoid about, and other people as well, and although it's not really a problem, maybe they had reason to believe it was at the time. On the other hand, Marilda, his mother, builds the Mouse House, which is a really hilarious name, but it's especially because it's it makes it sound like it's small and petty, but it's a nickname given to, to it by Mushroom. It's actually like a fancy mansion. And Marilda also expands the trading fleet, and Alan is presumably involved in his decisions and and in helping and they work together a lot so you can imagine that this was a joint venture in a lot of ways with her just kind of taking charge and the valerian wealth maybe supporting it in some way but again she had all a lot of her own money so it's entirely possible that okafist wasn't much involved in that and more on the rogares which is that the uh, the incident of the secret siege where Aegon III is trapped inside the Red Keep with Viserys and Lara Rogari and Sandok the Shadow and all these other interesting characters, including Daenerys herself. And the false confession from Thaddeus Rowan implicates Oakenfist as one of the conspirators. Viserys figures this out. He realizes that this is a false confession. He asks more leading questions that proves that the confession was fake. And... All this happens. Basically, and Alan isn't aware of any of this, at least not directly. He's not there for this because all this time he is being busy doing the kind of things that a normal master of ships would, even though he's not actually the master of ships. He was named it briefly, but again, the job is given to Gedmund. (laughs) Gedmund Greataxe, the guy who got sick sailing around, guy with very little naval experience, although he has a little more naval experience by now. However, this time Alan's not mad. We don't know why. Maybe he's just like, 
you know what? I don't like playing politics anyway. All that stuff, I didn't like being on the small council. I didn't like my little bit of time dealing with court figures. I don't, I don't like having to be around Unwin Peak. He prefers to be in action. He prefers to be sailing ships. He prefers to be going on voyages. He prefers to any of this, almost anything to that. So I can kind of maybe see a little growth in him that way. That is, he kind of, his ambitions were more aimed towards things that he was more interested in and less towards politics. And he's already such a powerful guy politically anyway. So we have civil war in the Vale, and this is what he was busy doing. He, his fleet takes Gulltown's harbor and doesn't seem to have a whole lot of trouble with it, although it gets a little more difficult on land. But he's able to wear down the opposition gradually. The war drags on for a while. But he's able to do his thing and gets yet more success under his belt. Another engagement successful. Another war that he's involved with where he's on the winning side. And he's a big part of that. So his reputation just continues to grow even greater. And he returns to King's Landing to find that, yeah, this is when he's passed over again for Master Ships. And he's also up for hand. But still too young is what he's deemed. But I got to say, Tywin was about this age when he became Hand. And Viserys, who Ellen just rescued, also becomes Hand at a similar age. In fact, not long from now. I believe maybe like five or six more years. But showing his, even though I was saying he's maybe not super interested in politics or perhaps prefers to be elsewhere... He does still show some political savvy. He suggests that Isambard Aaron, who is one of the men he was on the opposite side of in this Vale conflict, be the new master of coin. Because, well, I don't know exactly why, but Isambard was a good candidate for being master of coin, a person who was good with money. So that's cool. I, I, you know, I can respect Valerian for recognizing that this person was good for the realm, even though it was so recently his enemy. So we're mostly out of... We're, we're almost, rather, we're almost to the point where Fire and Blood ends and there's no more coverage of Oakenfist. So most of what's coming up here at the end is post-Fire and Blood, but some of it still is, especially this Rogaris stuff that we're going to deal with just for just a minute before we move on to the bigger things. So the second voyage, again, I said he has six voyages. And an interesting thing about that, before we describe the second voyage, let's just say he, he went on six voyages, six different ships. Which is cool, but I wonder why. I wonder if it's maybe some of the earlier ones were destroyed. Maybe he just kept improving his designs. Maybe it was based on where he was going. For example, his father sailed the Ice Wolf to the north and tried to find a north a passage in the ice there. And, but then he had his Sea Snake, which he sailed in the south. So that's a little, you know, that's possibly what's up. And Oakenfist called his six ships My Ladies. Which implies that they were all his ships and not, he didn't sail the Sea Snake or the Ice Wolf. The Ice Wolf, I mean, well, maybe the Sea Snake was a, a female name for a ship. I don't really know. That seems, that's, that's not really a gendered name. But Ice Wolf, I don't know, that sounds kind of masculine, but it could be a woman. There's nothing, there's nothing to pre prevent it from being a female named ship. And ships are very often ladies. That's pretty normal. So anyway, brief aside there to think about, what, about his ships. But we, we just honestly don't know a whole lot about them. Because of the Regari collapse, which we're not going into detail on, just saying that it happened and, you know, a ton of people lost a ton of money and that the Iron Bank was very much involved and that the Faceless Men were very much involved, probably. The collapse meant half of the Valerian wealth was lost, which, of course, considering how wealthy they were, that is an unfathomable sum. So they tried to, you know, make some of that back. Alan's idea was, let's do another trading voyage. We'll 
sail to all these free cities, culminating in Volantis, but also including Lise and other places. And this apparently may, I think this involved his mother going as well. And Bela, it was pregnant at the time and is angry that he would leave during her pregnancy because he wasn't there for her last pregnancy either. And she's also a bit angry that he's planning on returning to Dorne as part of this voyage because, well, the rumors about Aleandra and all that. So there's a little bit of worry that he's going to cheat again and all that. But apparently they make up again later. So apparently this is the voyage. We don't know. We don't have any details on it. They, they do do the trading circle to Volantis, go to Dorne and Lys and Pentos. And I guess it goes pretty well. Later in life, we're told that he battles pirates from the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea. That might be his third voyage. That might be further engagement with Rakalio Rendoon. Rendoon's another one of these characters who is still alive as of the end of Fire and Blood. So we have no idea what happens. Super chat from Rebecca Santa saying for the six, six ships of Oakenfist. Well, that one turned into a tongue twister on accidentally. So it was a six dollar super chat for six ships of Oakenfist. Very good. Thank you, Rebecca. Unsurprisingly, because he's such a popular, successful winner. He had a lot of books written about him. A lot of these books are mentioned throughout Fire and Blood. Bastard Born is one of them. Hard as Oak is one of them. But we don't get a lot of details as to what's in them. In one of them, we hear that uh, the book is written by a guy who went on the fifth voyage with him. But that's all the detail we have on the fifth voyage, that just that this guy, Russell Stilwell, Esquire, was on the voyage with him. That's all we know. We know even less about the others. The sixth voyage might be the one he didn't return from. But we don't even know that because this is one of those things where George just tells us he vanishes in 175. There's no context. We don't know whether he was with other ships. We don't even know when the expedition left. It could have been as early as maybe 171. Probably not. But 172, 173, 74, in that range, as late as 175. Were there other ships with him? Did anyone else return? Probably not because there's so little detail. But I feel like this is one of those things like George doesn't want to write himself into a corner. Doesn't want to decide right now. He wants to let more, since Oakenfist is a character that's going to be in Fire and Blood too. he doesn't want to make all these decisions and be bound to them later. So he leaves it intentionally vague, not unlike how the third Blackfire Rebellion is left in the World of Ice and Fire and several other stories where George just, or, or Makar's reign is another one where there's just a notable lack of detail. And it's because George is saving that. He's got plans for that, but he doesn't know what they are yet or didn't want to spend time on it right at that point because, well, he's got other things to write feel pretty strongly about that. Whenever George leaves something vague like that, especially about a character this popular and famous, there's a reason to think of it on meta, on the meta level and not on the in-world level. Other potential things that are relevant to him before we get to his, the conquest of Dorne, which is the main other thing we know about. And at some point, a deal was worked out with Bravos to forgive the attack that Alan made. And the indemnity was so big that the Iron Throne had to borrow from the Iron Bank to pay the Sea Lord. So once again, the Iron Bank just finds himself with all the debt in, you know, in hand. They're like, yep, we own everyone's debt. The Rogares had their little Rogare spring, a Lysine spring, as it was called, but it didn't last that long. Yep, hard to go up against the top bank when they have those assassins probably on their side. And in the year 138, one of people's favorite little tidbits here is that he goes to... Raven Tree Hall and recovers the bones of Adam and goes back with them to Driftmark and buries them and just puts that one word epitaph on his tomb, which says loyal. 
in, uh, I guess, all caps even, maybe, <laughs> the way it's written. And yeah, that's I, I, it's, it's great. I love that. I love that George included that. I love the way he wrote it. It's just, a, it seems to fit really well. And a lot of people have, have referenced that line, those lines as uh, sort of like a really great point. Eventually, we know that despite this craziness with the, with the blind dragon egg hatching, hatchling, rather, that bites Lena's arm, and Prince Aegon's, or King Aegon's thoughts on dragons in general, which he was very, you know, scared of them and against them, he clearly backs down on that later in life, because we know he tries to hatch eggs at some point. He brings mages over from the Far East, and hey, maybe that's one of, that was on Oakenfist. Maybe he's the one who went over there to, to get them. Maybe he brought back these mages. Maybe the, or that was his job, part of his, he was told, hey, go find, go bring us people that say they can hatch eggs. I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities here. Also very tempting to think he went to Ashai or the, the Thousand Islands, basically places that his father went. On the other hand, that might be the opposite way to think about it. Maybe he wanted to go to all the places his father didn't go that he wanted to go. His father was, surely there's, the world is huge. There's all these places that the sea snake probably wanted to sail to. They never could. Maybe Alan did some of those things. But it's also easy to see that he maybe tried to retrace his father's steps in some places. Maybe a little of both. You know, six voyages. And voyages aren't necessarily just a one place. You can go to multiple places on a voyage. So, yeah, we can have it both ways. So let's move on to the conquest of Dorne. This is way in the future. This is so, what, basically what we have here is a long stretch of time between, say, 138, which is when the, the epitaph was done, and 157, which is right around the time that the conquest begins, but it's also the same year that Aegon III dies. And here is where we have a quote, not from Fire and Blood, but from A Dance with Dragons. I know that tale as well, but Daron made too much of it in that vain, glorious book of his. Ships won that war, not goat tracks. Oakenfist broke the planky town and swept halfway up the green blood, whilst the main Dornish strength was engaged in the prince's pass. Stannis drummed his fingers on the map. Stannis, Stannis, Stannis. Yep, Stannis would recognize the greatness of Oakenfist, being a naval commander himself and a student of history. And yeah, I mean, the Valerians are his, his bannermen too. So there's a lot of, lot of connection there. You got to agree, right? I mean, the Stannis is, you know, he's not right about everything, but this is military history. He's probably right that Oakenfist was crucial to the success of the invasion of Dorne. And it wasn't something that Aegon or any of the other would-be conquerors of Dorne tried. They didn't use naval strength. They just used their dragons. But, you know, sometimes ships can do things better than dragons. Dragons are really awesome at just blowing everything up, but ships have their own uses. So he was instrumental in winning the war. And as we know, the Dorne did not stay conquered. And when they rose up, King Daron returned with his armies and his navies. And again, Oakenfist was the commander of the ships. We can pretty safely assume he was master of ships at this point. But, you know, it's not 100% certain. We are talking him as a much older man at this point. So the, the he's too young thing doesn't really fly. <laughs> but of course, not long after that, young, the young dragon was killed during a parlay. And that was it for the war. The war ended and the conquest of Dorne was abandoned because Baylor took over because Daron I didn't have any kids. And Baylor the Blessed was, well, he was Baylor the Blessed and he was not about to send any invasions. He sent himself barefoot to walk the Prince's Pass, or the Boneway rather. And that is a story that has nothing to do with Alan Valerian. But I do wonder what Alan Valerian did during Baylor's 
lifetime. He would not have had a bunch of orders to go fight people, that's for sure. I wonder if this is maybe when some of his voyages took place. He may have been a good time to do that, right? Head out to sea, go on an adventure when you've got this crazy Septon King doing his thing. Interesting possibility for an old mystery. It comes up here, and it's, it's funny that Alan is the guy that might be our connection point. It's long been wondered why Cregan Stark fought Aemon the Dragon Knight. For one thing, their ages are, are pretty far apart. They do overlap, but Rickon, who is son of Cregan, his heir, was killed near one of the final battles of the war. We think it was the initial conquest of Dorne and not the reconquest of Dorne. So it's possible that because this is such an important person, the heir to Winterfell and Cregan's promise, the pact was never fulfilled. They might have wanted to play this cautiously so the theory is, and this is hat tip to Nina Friel for this one, that he, Alan, brought Rickon's bones back to Winterfell, to the north, which gives us a potential time for Cregan and Aemon to fight. Now, again, I don't think Cregan and Aemon fought in earnest, like Cregan was trying to kill Aemon, but something had to happen, and this is a reasonable time for it. If we get any farther into the future... Well, not only do we not have any sort of example as to giving us a reason why they would have had a fight, but Cregan just gets older and older, and it just becomes hard to imagine Aemon saying, oh, he's the finest swordsman I ever fought. <laughs> if he was, like, in his 60s, it wouldn't be impossible. We got Barris and Selmy representing, you know, 63-year-old guys who can still fight incredibly well, so it's definitely possible, but eh, it's tough. It's tough to say. We have another important thing that comes later in his life, is the aforementioned affair with Elena Targaryen. Now, Elena wanted to marry him, which strongly implies Bela had died at some point before Alan. So that Alan outlasted Bela, or outlived Bela, which is too bad, but not 100% the case here. It just seems likely. Elena's probably not pining to marry a married man, at least not openly, especially because Elena seemed like a decent person. And they had twins, John and Jane Waters. They were bastards, clearly. And that John and Jane Waters are the two that Renifer Longwaters descends from. That opening quote from that very uh, awkward figure that Jamie's talking to, the chief underjailer. And these two are his ancestors. <laughs> that's that. So that's kind of our bookend on Alan Valerian here. The introduction with the quote from Jamie and wrapping it up with his ancestors. We don't know his other ancestor, presumably the Monford Valarian and his son are descendants of Alan, but we don't know that for sure. We do know for sure that John and Jane Waters' descendants, the Longwaters, are still out there. Who knows where else that Valarian blood is? So for the last few minutes, I'm going to refer to an email from patron Kelly Lowry and her husband, who is also a patron, apparently, or I guess they're just co-patrons together as a married couple. She says, I am what one might call a nautical nerd. And they sent us a, a lot of interesting tidbits in reference to our Sun Chaser episode. And because this is such a nautical episode, I thought we would refer to some of the things that she is teaching us here. She says she's sailed historical tall ships, studied sail technology and ship design, and has used historical navigational tools for fun, she says, not for survival. <laughs> she says, regarding the Sun Chaser episode she says, LML is correct when he says Vikings went from coast to coast. For centuries, European trade ships would know the bearing of one point of land to the next and go in certain order. 
port to port, and that would depend on the local trade winds and currents and tides. It's called caping, along with another common form of navigation called piloting. So this is sort of what we were talking about, but it's good to have this clarified and confirmed by someone who really knows what they're talking about. And oh, look at that. She is in the chat and she says, OMG, that's me. Yes, that is you. Thank you very much for this information. She refers to our mention of the currents and she says it reminds me of Columbus's men freaking out because they knew the earth was round, but the trade wind they sailed with was continuously blowing east. So their thought is, well, how do we get back? Which we did reference that in the Sun Chaser episode, like that would be the fear of a lot of people like, well, we're going to sail east or west rather, but how do we get back home? She goes on here and says, as far as navigation or lack of it, currents, trade winds, and inability to see the stars are all factors that could account for not being able to get back to the Summer Isles. So in this case, she's referring to the Hightower ship that tried to get back to Old Town and ended up in Satoria. <laughs> well, they tried to via the Summer Islands and they completely missed the Summer Isles. She says, and explaining the problem with tacking. Oh gods, where do I even start? It's hard on the ship and the sails and it's even harder on the crew. So tacking means going against the wind. Essentially, I think, I think it's probably a better way to explain that, but it's basically going against the wind. So this is, this is what we're talking about. No wonder it's so hard for them to go where they need to go when the wind is just not allowing them to. Referring to the design of the Sun Chaser, she says, Karak, the Karak took over a year to build because the Bravosi Galley's pieces can be mass produced if that's all you're building. Karak's and other hull designs require completely different pieces and all methods for fastening. It would have had to be, and this is my words here, it would have had to be handmade, not just in like some sort of a mold or anything like that. And it would have to be custom built. And she says the different pieces of a ship are different types of wood. You don't just build a ship out of one type of wood, all parts of it. And she says the different raw materials could come from different parts of the world, which would add delays. And she says it's usually Karak or Karak. So I'm saying it wrong. Karak is wrong. It's Karak or Karak. All right. And she says, I can't believe you guys mentioned Alice Westhill sailing past Estermont while Raina was there and did not utter the phrase like ships passing in the night. <laughs> well, that was a good opportunity for a pun. But technically, Raina wasn't on a ship. She was just on an island. <laughs> so that's my defense for not making that joke. Now she's going to reference here women and being bad luck on ships. She says, there is nothing that makes me more defensive or more confrontational than someone bringing this up. First, because there is no end to what men are willing to blame on women. Absolutely true. That's my words. And second, everyone forgets about the other thousands of ridiculous things considered bad luck at one time or another on ships. This is definitely true from my experience as well, not from sailing, but from reading history. And sailors and luck, like they're so superstitious. And yes, women was a thing, but they were superstitious about a million things. So in other words, she, she's not saying it's false. This did happen. The superstition against women was very strong and very powerful, but it's not as big or as diverse as maybe a lot of people have led to believe. In fact, I probably exaggerated how common it was. She says it only comes up in the Victorian era, which I did think it was more common than that. My fault, I suppose. Good to know. Good to know that it was only in the Victorian era and that it was not a superstition elsewhere. So if you see people bringing up the women's superstition thing in another era, tell them that they're probably wrong. Superstitions and omens all around the Sun Chaser story. She continues here. I've never heard of the one about the maggots, but dolphins playing and racing along are believed to be good luck. However... She says, the wind finally returned one day near sunset when the sky turned red as blood, but the look of it set men to muttering. That's a quote from Fire and Blood, of course. According to her, the way it works is red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. And yeah, so there you go. <laughs> that was apparently backwards because it says the sky turned red as blood near sunset, which is supposed to be red sky at night, sailors delight. So maybe George got that backwards. 
She says, the red sky at night was a positive sign and a good omen, but in the real world, or in the real world. But then Sir Eustace continues, I told them it boded well for us, but I lied. This is a no-no. Never, ever utter the words good luck on anything like it aboard ship and do not knowingly lie. That's a new, that's definitely a new one for me. I hadn't heard that at all. I hadn't even, I hadn't even heard the inkling of that thing. So apparently you don't talk about good luck in that sense, or you don't say the words good luck. Now she has some thoughts on the, the pigs on the Targaryen Islands there. She says, sailors, superstitions abound here, would get a pig tattoo and a chicken tattoo, one on each foot, because they believed if swept overboard, pigs and chickens can sense where the nearest land is and swim that way. Let's not kid ourselves. Pigs and chickens can drown, but apparently these pigs on these islands were either put there or swam ashore from sinking ships in the vicinity. In the 1500s, the Spanish dropped pigs off the island known as Mona between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico in the body of water known as the Mona Passage. The English settlers used a low-lying island across from Jamestown Island in Virginia for the same purpose. That island is now called Hog Island Wildlife Refuge. And she also adds she's heard that pigs will turn wild in less than three generations. All right, a couple more factoids here. The dynamic of the Sun Chaser continuing on while Sir Eustace turns back after witnessing the third ship go down. She says that almost the exact same thing happened on Martin Frobisher's first voyage to the Arctic in 1576. Quote, Not far from sight of Greenland, he lost company of his small ship, which by means of the great storm he supposed to be swallowed up of the sea, wherein Frobisher lost only four men. Also, the other bark named the Michael, mistrusting the matter, conveyed themselves privily away from him and returned home with great report that he was cast away. Huh. So that is from the voyages of Elizabeth Seaman. Uh, Elizabethan seamen, <laughs> selected narratives, Oxford, Elizabeth seamen. <laughs> yes, what? <laughs> Remember, hey, that's actually pretty funny because there's that weird long-standing historical like tinfoil theory that Elizabeth was a man, which is a bizarre theory, but it's persistent and, and easily debunked. But hey, I just accidentally referred to it. Here's another cool anecdote she gives us. Also on Sir Francis Drake's circ- circumnavigation. AKA F the Spanish for real. This voyage is bonkers. They start with three ships, then they steal some on the way south, then they use those to steal and rob others. In the process, get those banged up. They abandon some. By the time they get to the Straits of Magellan, they're back down to three. The smaller one, the Marigold, goes down in a crazy storm. The second ship, the Elizabeth, loses sight of Drake and just gives up and goes back home, leaving Drake on his own board the Pelican, whose name he just changed to the Golden Hind. And apparently, it's bad luck to rename a ship. She types that in all caps. <laughs> I'm going to say a couple other things in reference to some of this, because I, I'm a big fan of, of Sir Francis Drake's story. And there's a podcast I've referenced before called the Pirate History Podcast. It gives into great, great detail. And we are patrons of that show, in fact. And he talks about Sir Francis Drake quite a lot, in addition to a lot of other famous mariners of the Caribbean. And eventually he talks about some, some pirates in the Mediterranean as well, the uh, Barbary pirates, and a lot of these really amazing stories. So... I've given them a shout out before, but it's been probably a couple of years. So it's a good time to bring that up again. If you're into this nautical stuff, there's a lot of attention to detail with regards to that, with regards to sailing and ships and sailors' attitudes. It's not just about the, <laughs> the piracy and all that. All those things work together. One more anecdote from this letter. It's, it's pretty cool. Whale strikes. Sadly, this happens a lot. I was really happy Ashea brought up the whale ship. Essex, that is. In the book, In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick, it's mentioned how aggressive slash protective male sperm whales called bulls can be towards ships. Even now, in modern days, they sometimes attack fishing trawlers. Here's an account from Frobisher's second voyage in 1578. 
This same day, the salamander, being under both her courses and bonnets, which are sails and extensions, happened to strike a great whale with her full stem with such a blow that the ship stood still and stirred neither forward nor backward. The whale threat made a great and ugly noise and cast up his whole body and tail and so went under the water. Oof. Oh, sorry, the whale thereat made a great and ugly noise. Anyway, yeah, sometimes these old, these old style writing versions of English are hard to, to read. So that's really amazing. And by the way, Francis Drake's nickname was El Draco, as in the dragon. <laughs> a little footnote there for you. Okay, so that's, I, I loved that. Thank you very much for that email. That was very informative and added a lot of color to the Sun Chaser episode as well as to this one. Thanks very much, everyone who came today for participating in the chat, for liking and subscribing to us on YouTube and on iTunes, all the different places you can listen to us. Thank you to Ashea for running production and handling all the chats and comments. Thank you to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro outro. Thank you to all of our patrons who support the show and everybody else out there, all fellow Westorians who are in our Facebook group and who support us on Twitter and everywhere else. There's too many ways for me to say thanks, so I'll just say thanks to everybody. I'll leave it at that for now. We will see you guys next time. Valar reread us. It's time for the Patreon credits. First off, thanks to Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, writer of Mazalakartho, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King. The Smiling Wolf is Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower. Soldier, scholar, philosopher, diplomat, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West is also the also a podcaster under the name Two Wage War. And he is uh, he was inactive for a little while, but that show is back from its hiatus. He did an episode, a Mongol-related episode back in January, so check that out. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Gabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, defender of the old gods and warden of the north. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, warden of the south. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by flagship Caraxes and the Blood Bloodstone Fleet led by flagship Prince Damon. By his time, Mercalio Rendoon is a distant memory. The small council includes Lord Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin, Lord Johan of House Orcos, called Shadowhawk, Master of Whispers. Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashland Winter oh, is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of Valyrian Stort Swords, Glorious Morning and Little Lightwise, sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Old and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolf's Wood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring. 
Navessa the Twin-Hearted, a suspected skin changer, is holder of Castle Karahelm. Sir Valentin of House to Gen is creator of the Game of Predictions, free Game of Thrones predictions slash futures market. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island is protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earthdog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweed. King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Shea's Queen's High Council is, it includes Bloody Ben Black, Blackwood, Master of Whispers. Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. In the shadows we bear our claws. And Grand Maester Elizabeth is middle daughter of Liana Mormont, First Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Lynx. Our Lord Commander of, the King, of our Kingsguard is L Miriam R. Backed up by Sir Dollars D, the longest tenured White Sword. Willa Crosbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk. Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Sir Jord of House Pepsi, the Beverage Knight. And Gregor Snow called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell. The Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander, Commander, Commander Hama Hillmanth, the Sellsword Sentinel. Alexander of House Atreides, from the Seat of Doom. I must not fear, fear is the Mind Killer. Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious, star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the twin Valyrian Steel Blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow Rain. Amber the Adamant, the Knight of Mist, and Mother of Squids. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak. Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frosty. Sir Tim Corgyle, Mad Boy of the Western Desert. And Queen Helena von Lanstein, partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something. A kingdom for a drink. Last but certainly not least, the history of Westeros Night's Watch, led by Lord Commander Benjamin Umber, the Silent Giant, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss. First Builder, Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. First Steward, Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Palewind. And leading the rear, First Ranger, Sir Sorstelica of House Gramercy. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week. I will announce the topic within a couple days. We've had to rearrange some of our topic order, so that's a little bit up in the air. But just like Oaken Fist, we'll get it all settled, squared away, and come back with a whole bunch of notes and fun discussions next time. Until then, you know what to do. Valar Reredus. <laughs>